Goddag og velkommen til Langsom Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg vil gerne tilstå, at jeg ikke på noget som helst tidspunkt har været bange for fascismen i mit liv. Altså, jeg har ofte brugt udtrykket fascist om dem, jeg ikke brød mig om. Særligt som ung, og så har jeg fundet ud af som ældre, at det var rimelig åndssvagt at kalde alle mulige for fascister. Det betyder, at man overhovedet ikke interesserer sig for dem. Det betyder også, at man heller ikke kan forhandle med dem. Og det betyder også, at man skaber en verden af de gode og de onde. Så jeg har egentlig slet ikke betragtet fascismen som en trussel, og jeg synes, hver gang vi har kaldt højrefløjen for fascister, så har vi misforstået den trussel, der kunne være fra det yderste højre, fra nationalister, fra ekstremister og fra Trump. Så, så jeg har ikke været bekymret for, for fascisme. Men så konstaterede jeg, at en forfatter og en intellektuel og en journalist, som vi virkelig sætter pris på her på avisen, nemlig Paul Mason, han planlagde en bog, der hed How to Stop Fascism. Hvordan skal vi stoppe fascismen? Og vi kan virkelig godt lide Paul Mason. Han har skrevet en vidunderlig bog om, hvordan man skal leve efter kapitalismen. Han har været enormt aktiv i kampen mod spareregimet i Europa. Han har lavet en vidunderlig dokumentarserie om det græske Sidita-parti. Og har lavet en enormt sjov transformation fra at være en nobel, respektabel BBC-journalist til at blive en venstreorienteret aktivist. Så jeg blev nysgerrig på, hvorfor fanden Paul Mason nu mener, at vi skal stoppe fascismen. Jeg kan slet ikke se, at fascismen er på vej. Men så gik det op for mig. At Paul Masons argument, det er, at hvis vi skal have nogen som helst chance for at modvirke klimaforandringerne, så bliver vi nødt til at sikre os, at Brasilien ikke er regeret af en mand, som vil brænde Amazonskoven af. Så bliver vi nødt til at sikre os, at USA ikke er regeret af en mand, der mener, at klimaforandringerne er noget, som russerne har fundet på. Så bliver vi nødt til at sikre os, at vi ikke lever i en verden, som er regeret af Putin, Xi Jinping og Erdogan, at opgøret med det yderste højre er en forudsætning for, at den grønne omstilling kan lykkes, og klimaforandringerne er jeg skide bange for. Jeg synes faktisk, det argument har noget på sig. Så derfor så skrev jeg til Paul Mason og sagde, vil du ikke nok fortælle os om, hvorfor kampen mod fascismen er den vigtigste kamp i dag overhovedet? Og det er det, som vores samtale handler om. Good evening to you, Paul Mason, who's with us from a caravan in Wales, isn't that correct? That's correct. I'm uh, right in the middle of the countryside on the Welsh coastline in a small metal box. But thanks to Wi-Fi, I think we're hearing each other loud and clear. Your your new book, it, it just came out. It came out in August. Isn't that correct? Yeah, last week. There's a quote in the book that I really love and I would I would wish I could say that. And it's the simplest way to stop fascism is to put your body, not your Internet avatar between fascists and their objectives. I have done this and I and can attest to how powerful it can be. This is a, a, a wonderful quote, but it also indicates that you have a personal history of fighting fascism. Well, I, I mean, yes, I do. Uh, but let's remember that the next sentence after that says, but, but given what we're now facing, that's not enough. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, in as a young person uh, in, uh, a working class town in near Manchester in Lancashire uh, in England um you know in the 1970s suddenly uh you know we were all really into soul music we were all really into black culture and suddenly out of nowhere you started to see neo nazis uh, i'm sure it's the same in denmark it's the same for for the for a generation of of european young people in the sec- in the last quarter of the 20th century we start, we we we, decide, we suddenly started to see neo fascists and my reaction was to join 
the biggest thing that there was against them, which was called the Anti-Nazi League. And the Anti-Nazi League was a huge cultural movement that um, almost um, cornered the market in punk rock. It became synonymous with punk rock. Um, it, it was started by rock musicians, in fact, uh, Rock Against Racism, because so many of the old guard, including at the time Eric Clapton, were, were, were saying things that echoed what the fascists were saying. But, you know, I mean, my, my anti-fascist career was curtailed when I became a, a kind of mainstream journalist. You can't be doing the two things. Um, but today, what we're, I mean, one of the things I've, I've, I've begun to write about in the book and, and after finishing the book is, you know, sometimes when you were on an anti-fascist demonstration in the 1970s or 80s or early 90s, you had to, as a white man with a working class accent, I could go in and stand up among them and listen to them. Um, they weren't pleasant people, but they were rational. Very few of them had in their heads a kind of deranged uh, objection to scientific truth. Um, they were simply ordinary racists. Probably their fathers and grandfathers had been far-right racists. They drank in racist pubs and they thought racist ideas, very extreme racist ideas. But they didn't believe, for example, that the global elite were harvesting the blood of children to, to, um, to drink it and achieve everlasting life. <laughs> this is what fascists, the, the QAnon conspiracy, now believe. In writing the book, what I've tried to do is to try and educate a lot of people my age and even above my age, I'm 61, who think they know what fascism is and think they know how to fight it. And these people, uh, unfortunately, include most politicians, most prime ministers, most police chiefs, people in authority over the age of 50, have a very different experience of the far right than the one we now face. And that's one of the, uh, the kind of main themes of the book. And something that <clears throat> I really enjoyed is that I think it's also addressed to left-wing activists because there are some alliances that people on the left don't build naturally. And there are some, like a lot of people on the left will say, well, I don't know if Hillary Clinton isn't worse than Donald Trump, yeah. but she's kind of the face of neoliberalism and neoliberalism is our real enemy. And he's just a, he's just a clown. So I, I had the sense when I was reading a book and I really enjoyed it also because i didn't know a lot about how the Nazis came to power. I know a lot about how they lost power. That was actually new to me. And I, I'm 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 47, so so I, I was very educated by by that. But I thought, well, this is also a way of educating the left about how to build alliances against fascism. Yeah, I mean, actually, it's not aimed at left-wing activists nor even left-wing people. I, I wrote it always in my in my head, thinking about my 18-year-old. Goddaughter, um, who has just left school, um, did politics at school for her, the exam you take when you're 18 here in the UK. But I just felt in the discussion with her and her generation, they had no idea really about what fascism is, how it comes to power, what's the, what the current danger is. And yet, unlike me, so it was a surprise to me at the age of 18 to see neo-Nazis, they are surrounded online by the ethos of fascism, by the, the fascist concept of humanity and indeed the fascist understanding of what freedom constitutes. And so, yeah, before, before educating the left, I wanted to write this as a 
readable book, a, a book that you can pick up and just read and not have to look up words in a dictionary or think too hard about. Um, but yeah, the, there is a, an argument with the left going on here. Um, because, okay, in the first half of the 2010s decade, I was, uh, as a BBC journalist, uh, covering uh, the anti-austerity struggles, you know, the, the struggle against the Maastricht Treaty criteria. Um, and I support, I can now reveal, I can support um, the, the, the struggle again to, to, I think we should rewrite Maastricht. I think we should rewrite the, uh, the European treaty. Um, I think the European Central Bank, the IMF and the European Commission, more or less destroyed uh, Greek democracy in the pursuit of destroying the Syriza government. And I was there to see it. It was an economic siege. At that time, I would say the main enemy of social justice were those European politicians who were determined to force down austerity. Above all, the German politicians who revel in this uh, concept of the Schwarze Null, the, the black zero, uh, which that should, be the, that should be the outcome of every year's budgeting. No borrowing whatsoever. But today we face a bigger threat than Dijsselbloem and, and, and Merkel uh, and, you know, we face a bigger threat. The threat is to democracy, to human freedom, full stop, to the, to the reproductive rights of women. It's not, this isn't fascism that's done this, but simply a right-wing government in Texas this week has more or less banned abortion. So we, you know, John Maynard Keynes, you know, yes. who I've studied as an economist, the famous saying, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? Um, <laughs> We have to, I now see the alliance of right-wing populism with actual resurgent global fascism, which has a new character, as the main danger, because it's going to destroy democracies, it's hollowing out democracies as we speak. And there is no chance whatsoever of even liberal and democratic governments taking the action needed on climate change if we allow those right-wing stroke far-right alliances to control politics in the key countries that they currently control them. Whatever we do in Denmark, you know, when, you know we can talk about the Danish gov governmental situation. If we want to save this planet from climate change, Brazil cannot be ruled by a man who thinks it's okay to burn the Amazon forest. The Amazon forest belongs to all of us, as does the Pacific Ocean. We cannot allow governments to destroy our planet and one of the messages of this book is that, you know, no matter how focused you are on the positives, because I'm sure many of the, re the readers and, and, what and watchers of this, everybody in politics wants to be focused on positivity. Nobody wants to be spending their time being against stuff. So I want decarbonization. I want an active green world. I want social justice. I want culture. But fascism stands in the way of all of it. It is going to stop us achieving decarbonized world and so my plea is with not just to the left but to progressives and liberals and the, the liberal center decide now that this huge and, and and clear and present enemy needs to be defeated for a second time whoa and there's always uh, you know there's always a lot of debate about the word fascism yeah. and 
and you know, as someone who grew up intellectually on the left and been on the left for for thirty years, I'm always very cautious about it because we've yeah. been throwing that word around everyone, from those who are just against abortion or those who just wanted tighter yeah. immigration policies. And I think it failed on two levels. On a normative level, it meant that you didn't ask yourself, what are these people demanding? What are what trade-offs are there? And 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 Marxist analysis is not sufficient uh, here. Yeah. So on a normative level, I think it, it didn't work for us. On a strategic level, it definitely did not work. It, it was more like they call us fascists. Look how elitist progressives they, they are. So, and I know it's it's a, a very enlightened choice uh, on your side to use the word. Why did you choose it? Well, I think um, if we th- there there is a choice that historians make and political scientists, uh, whether or not you can use the word fascism generically. So even if we're only studying Hitler, Mussolini, um, and, you know, the, say the British Union of Fascists, uh, where the clue was in the name there. Um, <laughs> in fact, they were called the British Union of Fascists Limited. They were, they were a, a political party and <laughs> a limited company. But so if we want to study three phenomena side by side in the 1930s, we can choose to say, as some historians do, we cannot call Hitler fascist. Only Mussolini can be called fascist. And, and the British Union of Fascists said it was fascist and it had some attributes similar to Mussolini. So we can include that in the generic term. I don't uh, I, I don't take that view. I, I think that when we study history, we can use the a generic model of fascism and say Hitler, the Nazi party, uh, Mussolini, and others in Europe were part of a gen- general fascist era, indeed, uh, a phenomenon. Okay, now if we apply that historical concept now to the present, we can do as, you know, if you can just, you can just you lose the word fascism and just substitute with, far-right extremist. Um, sometimes you have to, you know, far-right extremist. Okay. Um, what, are we, what are we dealing with? We are dealing with groups uh, that exist on a national basis, but which in, especially now, especially in the networked era and the globalised era of communications, do much more easily than in the 1930s interact they adopt and assimilate aspects of each other's politics. They support each other. So gone are the days when the Hungarian fascists would say, you know, we hate the Bulgarian fascists because they have claims on a border town. Yeah. yeah. They, you know, there are probably still elderly Hungarian fascists who believe that. But now international fascism is far more focused around ethnicity the white European ethnicity and the defense of it. And so I think that whether we like it or not, a fascism exists. Now, the European Commission on its website has a kind of guide to who's who. It says fascists are violent. Fascists are right wing extremists are violent. They want to smash democracy. They're usually violently misogynist. Uh, Their nationalism is ethno nationalism, whereas right wing populism as a category, accepts democracy, stands in elections, its nationalism is cultural, um, and, and it tends to be a bit more racist, less misogynist. Okay, fine. I accept that. I can accept those, those generic typo, typologies. The problem is, 
and the arguments I have in the book. During the 1990s and since then, both political scientists, pollsters, and political strategists have tended to see right-wing populist parties as, and you have one yourself, you know, one of the oldest ones, the Danish People's Party. Um, they tend to see them as um, a firewall against fascism. Yes. So you know, if you look at the Alternative für Deutschland, which I know better than the Danish People's Party, when it emerged in 2015, people in Germany said, well, OK, look, but at least it's not fascist. At least it's got, you know, they may have demonstrations, but they're not overtly violent demonstrations. And in a way, it allows all the xenophobia and racism and, you know, just generally nasty ideas in society to go into a dead end where it can never take power and it's going to be peaceful. Uh, because in Germany, the moment it's not peaceful, they have this law. You have a little bit of a law yes. like this, but they have a, a very draconian law that says, you, right, you are now criminalised. OK, the problem is, since the middle of the last decade, the firewall is on fire. The right-wing populism has ceased to be, if it ever was, a channel, a diversion for the energies that lead people towards fascist conclusions. And we, there are example after example and I use six of them in the in the in the book of right wing populist politicians and formations actually becoming the accelerator of real fascism. And the real fascists don't want to replace them yet. They don't. You know, Hitler wanted to replace the populist German National People's Party. That was his target voters when he when he began the rise to power in 1929, the DNVP, German National People's Party. He said, right, they're, they're prime, prime targets for us. It's, it's not common in the world at the moment for the ultra far right to be wanting to take over and replace as a kind of voting uh, proposition the, those radical right-wing populist parties. Far better, what they want is a right-wing populist government hollowing out democracy, attacking the left, attacking human rights, building the the, the, the authoritarian state and at the same time allowing them the space to operate in. This is an exact description of what Trump did after the Charlottesville demonstration in 2017. Trump said, he could have said, he could have said, look, I don't think Trump is a fascist because what Trump's, Trump is just a, an economic nationalist, ultra right wing conservative, okay? And he, with populism, oozing out of every pore of his body, okay? Um, but Trump could have said, look, my project is an authoritarian American state, a Supreme Court that will ban abortion, uh, states that will suppress the votes of black people and minorities. I don't need you. I don't need 500 guys chanting against Jews in, in Charlottesville. Why do I need you? I've got the army. I have the police. But he didn't. He said, some of you are good people. And after that, he began to mobilize that extreme right through the QAnon conspiracy, through proxy organizations, through actual, actual, amazingly, actual channels of money and influence and messaging straight to far-right armed militias. Trump is, a, Trump is, in a way, now the kind of the primary case study for what we have to fear, that, that right-wing populism overtly turns and fosters the thing to the to the, that's even more extreme than itself, and so that's what that's what prompted me to write the book. That the 
the sudden realization that Trump was not the worst thing that could happen to America. And I think that's a very strong point in the book that these right-wing populist government, they're disarming our defense against Nazism and fascism, that these contracts that were made in societies after the Second World War, that these rights were important, these rails were important to defend ourselves against the demons of our own society. They're taking it down, and you see it very strongly in some of the Eastern European countries. Something that struck me while reading the, your book is that it seems to me that the right-wing populists are a lot better at organizing internationally than the left-wing. Is that, that, that you, it seems that you have an internationale on the right, whereas you see, uh, whereas you see these different leftist positions, they don't seem to organize and exchange ideas. Cyprus, that you wrote a lot about, or, or that you covered, might be a little bit of a difference, but he didn't even appeal to the European left. Corbyn, who was kind of a popular cultural phenomenon here, yeah. here in Denmark, he, he didn't seem interested at all in... in, I in, in, in <laughs> I mean, he seemed like he, he just didn't care. Isn't that correct? That it's kind of an asymmetry that the right-wing populism, they're the internationalists now. Yes, and I think it's, it's to the huge um, detriment of the left that this is, I mean, you, you describe it well. Uh, Mélenchon, uh, you know, the French presidential yes. candidate, will not sit in the same room as Alexis Tsipras because <laughs> he believes he betrayed the, the Greek people in, in the climb down over 2015. Corbyn, I can attest, uh, you know, I was personally involved in trying to arrange meetings between, between Corbyn and key figures on the European, in that, that group in the European Parliament, the GUE NGL, the, the radical yes. left, the, the one that is the Red Green Alliance in, in your country. Very difficult to get him interested uh, in that. Um, no, what's the reason for the, what's the reason for the left problem? Well, there's a good reason, and that is most of the radical left parties in Europe and indeed in the United States are have been trying to solve a national problem. They have a national struggle to to solve. Um, in Britain, we had the austerity governments. Um, in Greece, we had ultra-austerity. And, of course, uh, a conservative government between 2010 and 2015, which was, I think, was tacitly encouraging the conditions for Golden Dawn to grow. I experienced it myself, the way in which you know, the police were never allowed to crack down on Golden Dawn until Golden Dawn overstepped the mark, yeah? killing, uh, a fam famously killing the rapper Pavlos Pisas. So... The, the other thing is, is that most of the most radical left parties have an element of, you know, let's let's use the correct political terminology for it, because we've yes. already had a, a debate about the political terminology of the right. Uh, the correct political terminology for some parts of the European left, and you have one in Denmark, is Stalinism. Yeah. You have economic nationalist, nationally orientated uh learn nothing, forget nothing, past-orientated, uh, nostalgia groups, I sometimes call them reenactment groups, uh, for <laughs> the glory days of the Moscow Comintern, okay? They, they, are, they all had, in the 1950s, national roads to socialism. In, in, in Britain, the left program was called the British Road to Socialism. <laughs> okay, now, that wasn't a problem when we were facing an essentially nationalist far-right but now we're facing an ethno-nationalist far-right 
So it wants, what's their ultimate goal? You know, what's their, in, in the book, I try to break down what I call the thought architecture of modern exactly. fascism. And point one is the great replacement theory. The idea that white Europeans are, are being subjected to genocide by non-white, non-Christian immigrants. That's the number one. Point two, uh, the, the collaborators with this new occupation, this is the language that the far right uses, the collaborators, number one, collaborator number one is feminism, because feminism depresses the white birth rate. Collaborator number two is Marxism. And no, they don't, by Marxism, they don't mean people like me who actually write, you know, I, I could have a t-shirt saying, I am a Marxist. No, <laughs> they mean, they mean just basically liberals, human rights lawyers. Yes. Um, they call them cultural, cultural Marxists. Cultural yes. Marxists. Um, point four, I've already described. It's what we call metapolitics. You don't seize power. You allow others to take power, hollowed out democracy, and you just tell your story over and over again through symbolic violent action. And point five, and this is the important thing, that explains the international internationalist character of the new far right. Point five is what they're waiting for, what they're prepping for, as they say, the preppers, is a, a global catastrophe in which a ethno-ethnic civil war breaks out and you get the emergence of large governed spaces. This is the idea in, in, in the work of the Nazi jurist Carl Schmitt. Large spaces need big governments like the Third Reich. Yeah, I, You know, when it stretched from the Volga to the English Channel. Um, that's their idea. So actually, they, they want a, a, a Eurasian white ethnostate. And so it's logical for them to, to dissolve their national differences. And yeah, I mean, actually, the current left in European and American politics is doing okay, focused as it is around national dynamics. Um, Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders in America are doing okay. Uh, I would say the Finnish left, uh, I would say that the, you know, the Greek left, I think Syriza will come back to power. In the, the Spanish left has taken power alongside the Social Democrats. Good, I agree with that. But at some point, the Portuguese left. Yep. At some point, but there was an adjunct to the Socialist Party. At some point, we're going to have to evolve new tactics uh, that transcend simply relearning the the lessons of the 1930s. That because I think the one thing you learn when you go to ever anywhere near 21st century fascism is that unlike the thing I was fighting as a teenager, it morphs really quickly. It doesn't really have leaders. There are a few leaders. You know, you, you have a far right leader who got himself in jail, uh, you know, during the 2019 election. Um, but, but in general, it's more of a networked movement. And it means it can, this is the other thing. It's, there's no Hitler and there's no Mein Kampf in the sense that the participants in the modern far right, even peripheral people, can co-create the ideology online. You know, they'll have a new idea. You know, I've just linked up, my synapses have linked one crazy right-wing conspiracy theory to another, and therefore I've produced in my head a new theory. Bang, there it <laughs> is. Um, before you know it, that theory is kind of circulating. And this is, again, the great attraction for those people who want to be uh, in the modern far right, that they, that they are empowered to design your own fascism. 
Um, so it's a really new phenomenon we're dealing with. And we do need to come up. You know, the best, the, the most internationalist thing that's happening are the, the, the monitoring networks. There's a series of monitoring networks linked, sometimes linked to, play, to like the Atlantic Council or to the European Council itself but mainly existing at that sub-governmental level. And they are really swapping information. Um, and we need to do that. I, I, let me give you an example. So I was in, in Sweden, something like 2018 in Sweden, and um, we had dinner with some members of a left NGO and after I'd done a book uh, introduction. And, um, and one of them said to me, you'll never guess what the far right are tweeting about this week. And I said, I can guess. I said, animal rights. And they said, well, how do you how do you know that? I said, because that's exactly what they're tweeting about in Britain. Uh, the, 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 it's internationalist. But like it was like news to these people that, that in some way the British and the, and the Swedish far right and why they're tweeting about animal rights, because they're against kosher and halal meat. That's what that's why they tweet about animal rights. You write in the book that it's specifically the job of the left to defeat fascism. That there's this wonderful quote by Hannah Arndt about the the what is the opposite of permanent? This alliance Tempor temporary the temporary the alli alliance, be yeah. between, alliance the between the elite and the mob. Yeah, yeah exactly. And this is a, a phenomenon that it that can be hard to understand when you look at people who are ripped by globalization then voting for. Donald Trump, but but and and then your point is, or the premise of the point is that the left has to beat that alliance. That this can this cannot be left to the to the right, and that in the 30s the left had the wrong answers, the wrong analysis, and the wrong theories. Uh, so so how, what should the left uh, analysis be today? Well, look, <clears throat> let's let's just remind people of, of what went wrong in the 1920s and 30s. Definitely, Italian fascism. Uh, one, you know, as I write, because because the labor movement, before we go into any tactical problems, ordinary peasants and workers believed in the, the historic destiny of socialism, that they would win under all circumstances. And th this crazy ultra leftist Italian communist leader, Amadeo Bordiga, went to Moscow in the week after Mussolini's victory and told the Comintern, the international communist movement, that things would now be better in Italy for the workers' movement than they were before Mussolini won. Uh, I mean, so you can sense the depth of the disorientation. But by the late 20s, the international communist movement had adopted a, a what would seem to most people absolutely crazy position, which said, that social democracy, so the official socialist party, was the same as fascism. And since the social democrats were like, you know, in Germany, seven million people, uh, you know, seven million voters, um, you know, something, something like, you know, probably a million members of the party, but Hitler only had like thousands. Social democracy was the worst and most dangerous fascism, and that the whole point of communist politics was to smash social democracy. Now, this led them to a completely miss the, the rising threat of actual real Nazi fascism, b for four years to refuse any kind of unity in action, electoral pacts, joint demonstrations, the you name it, were all rejected 
in the name of class against class. Now, what happened? I always try in my books to, to use micro studies. And unlike, so when I was 20, these micro studies weren't written. We've had, you know, we've had 40 years of superb sociological history written. And so if you go and look at micro studies of Communist Party youth cells in Germany, or micro studies of Sturmabteilung, you know, Hitler youth uh, uh, cells, what is clear is that um, very quickly, the idea that, okay, we're going to smash the fascists, that ran into a problem. They couldn't smash them. <laughs> so the Communist Party slogan was smash fascism wherever you find it. And they sent their members out to literally, you know, put on the door of the local fascist, you are dead. You know, you are, you're, get, out, get out or you're dead. Soon, there were too many doors to put this on. So they then moved to mass action. What was the mass action? Rent strikes. We go on strike until the landlord evicts the fascist from our, our mansion block. Um, unfortunately, in the German system, the, the state paid unemployed people's rent. So the rent strike didn't work <laughs> because they weren't paying them. Okay, so they, they, they then go, okay, well, what do we do? And the obvious thing was to unite with this huge social democratic movement that unfortunately was quite peaceful and pacifist and itself didn't see the danger and hated the communists. You know, the, there's a famous uh, symbol used by anti-fascists today, three arrows, three yes. arrows pointing down. In its first usage by the, by the German Socialist Party, one arrow was to fight um, the bourgeoisie, one arrow was to fight Hitler, and the third arrow was to fight the communists. So there was no love lost. Okay, but we we needed to find a way over that. The Germans failed to do so. And so they lost without ever, you know, the only barricade fighting in the entire period staged, you know, overtly by the German far left was May the 1st, 1929 against the Social Democratic government of Berlin. This is the famous event that you yes. see if you watch this uh, drama series, Babylon Berlin. At no other time did they go to the barricades, certainly never against fascism or mass. So we come to 1934, and out of nowhere, almost by accident, and I describe in the book how it is almost by accident, by because of a series of egotistical people, the French Communist Party evolved the tactic of the Popular Front, which was to flip 180 degrees and say, not only will we now ally with the socialists who we hated one year before, we are now going to ally with liberalism and defend democracy and fly the national flag and sing the national anthem and vote for the military budget. In, by doing that, you know, of course, it was cynical. Of course, it was untheorized. Um, but by doing it, they stopped fascism. Um, they stopped fascism in, the, in, in France in the, in the 1936 election, where they put a left liberal government in power. And in Spain, in February 1936, they won the election. And, you know, the Spanish Civil War then kicked off. But had the left not had control of power of all the police barracks, all the army, all the army barracks of the, the machinery of government, that war would have been over far sooner, if at all. Um, so the Popular Front, I argue, is the answer. The, the alliance of the elite and the mob, the only way to defeat it is an alliance of the centre and the left. That's all we know in history. Now, that has to take a new form. It's going to take 
strange forms because there are some strange centrist parties. There are also some, some unusual left parties. You have one in, in Denmark, which has adopted um, an anti-immigration stance in order to try and neutralize uh, the far right among its own supporters. We can maybe talk about that. But either way, I would, if I were, you know, if, if we are facing in any European country, a serious Trump-like threat of a right-wing populism hollowing out democracy and allied to a far-right a far right populist uh, kind of networked racism and anti-feminism, anti I will ally with any liberal party, no matter what they did during the period of austerity. And so, I, because I think that's the bigger danger. And I think that that really needs some that requires some rethinking on the left because after 30 or 40 years of neoliberalism a lot on the left have been accustomed to looking at Tony Blair like the enemy or Bill Clinton like like the enemy and say we can't compromise with the the liberal elites or the neoliberal elites or the plutocrats that said they were labor party or or democrat so you have this antagonism on the left and to a certain extent actually this antagonism proved very productive in America, where you had Bernie Sanders running against them. And he produced a political program that influenced yeah. Joe Biden a lot. So I think this antagonism, actually, on the left, saying we don't want neoliberal policies anymore. Absolutely. But that also meant demonizing characters like Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, yeah. their policies. And I think that puts us at a dilemma. It does. It does. Look, I think the way it worked out, Sanders was right to stand. Ocasio-Cortez was right to outline the Green New Deal. Uh, the, uh, Stacey Abrams in, in Georgia was right to build a huge coalition that could mobilize the black vote in that traditionally Republican one state and flip it, uh, albeit by a, a marginal number of votes. The, that The left, because Sanders, Ocasio-Cortez, Abrams and their group are, I believe, the left. I'm not talking about the far left here in, no, in, no. in America. Um, we're right to do that. But in the end, they 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 stood back and they allowed Biden to, you know, remember Sanders, Sanders quit. He pulled out of, yes. of the primary. And a lot of my friends in that movement were really frustrated by that. But I think it turned out to be the right thing to do. It allowed the this alliance of the center and the left then to to rev up longer to 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 defeat uh Trump in detail, because you have to defeat people like Trump state by state, area by area. He added, remember, Trump added 10 million voters to his 2016 total. That's how big the left's achievement was. Now, I think what it means practically is, look, of course, we can say, you know, Blair, you know, I mean, as, a, as an active participant in British <laughs> politics, I can tell you that whether I believe Tony Blair's the enemy, He and his people believe I'm the enemy. That's a, <laughs> there is there is I, I once I once I never interviewed Blair, but I once um, stood in the same room as him as he was about to be interviewed by the BBC at the United Nations, and he clearly knew because he's a late because I'm in the Labour Party. He is was the leader of the Labour Party, and he also remember has access to intelligence reports. He looked at me as if to say, "Who the hell is this?" You know, but he knew he knew who I was. Okay, I knew what my politics were. But okay, today I've got I'll say again, I have no problem in, in if I can find practical unity in action against the far right with people like Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, uh, Tony Blair, and all his acolytes, I will do so. And indeed, we had a, a trial run at this in the United Kingdom 
during the Brexit debate. I, I, you know, I'm a huge critic of the European Union and the Maastricht Treaty, as I've already said. But given the choice between a second referendum to stay in the European Union and what we now have, which was the absolutely crazed uh, hard Brexit that Boris Johnson has driven us into. It's like a, a, a political, social and economic dead end. I chose to fight for that second referendum and fight for the Remain position, should we have got that second referendum, I voted for Remain in the first referendum. And in, in that fight for a second referendum, I was physically in the room again with people like Alistair Campbell, Blair's right-hand man, uh, people like Lord Adonis, who was a centrist liberal uh, British peer. Yeah, and so we had a trial run at that. The trial run tells you, incidentally, that they're not very good at fighting the, the right, that they don't have good arguments and they are highly reliant on uh, the idea that there is a kind of decent centrist sort of machine in politics that will always stop the far right populist right alliance. Remember, this was the, the default position when Trump came to power. Lots of American centrists said, yeah, but the system will contain him. Yeah, the system will just ill neutralize him. The people around him will be kind of, no. I mean, everybody decent was sacked. And suddenly Trump had around him, you know, real you know, white supremacists. He had crazed people like Mike Flynn. You know, to, so many people in Trump's administration, the early period, have actually been convicted of crimes. And maybe one day he will be. So, you know, let's remind our, our colleagues in this fight for democracy, for human rights, for a universal, a universal concept of humanity and human rights, and, and for a a liberal internationalism that keeps the European Union together if we can. Let's remind them that it's their failure. You know, the failures have not been ours on the left. You know, it wasn't, Alexis Tsipras didn't cave in and, and, and sort of retreat because he wanted to. It's because the centrist politicians of Europe attacked him and attacked the democratic structures of Greece. But I'm willing to say, right, that was then. Now we face something different, but at least... I would like to see liberal centrist politicians learn. You know, there's a famous saying um, by one of my left, leftist colleagues. Um, in fact, I think it's Andreas Malm uh, who says this, uh, the, the Swedish uh, eco-socialist. Eco Liberals don't have a theory of catastrophe. They don't have an understanding that things can go badly wrong. For them, they tend to look at, at progress as being either slow or fast and regression as sort of temporary. Um, in that, they're quite like the liberals who, you know, handed Mussolini 35 seats in Parliament in 19 in 1920, <laughs> uh, you know, on the assumption that he might go away after that. Um, no, they tend not to. They tend to come back for more. I have one last question for you, which is very difficult, and I'll take a little jump here. I think there is in all your book not necessarily an optimism, but a sense of hope. There's a sense that engaging really matters. And there is a, a, a spirit of activism that, that, that I really like, an enthusiasm about engaging in ideas, studies, micro-studies, ideas. And I think to a, to a certain extent, I follow this spirit all the way. But then, because I think, you know, progress happens all the time. It happens slow. Then you have losses. But then all of a sudden, you have Greta Thunberg, and she influences the CEO of, of BlackRock. So, you, you know, you there's, there's meaning to the fight all the time. But at times I think about climate change 
and you know about having been engaged in this fight for 40 years having said a lot of things and having over the last two or three years really won the battle of hearts and minds and and a structural level a political level and still you know we're here facing what would 30 years ago be worst case scenarios and even if we do our utmost if humanity uh, if we perform something that is not even likely a kind of miracle over the next 10 years then still we change the natural habitat on the earth yep. radically for our children and grandchildren and you know i feel we have to talk about it all the time i feel you can't talk about it all the time how should we deal with this history of fighting climate change and this truth that we definitely lost and that we must keep on fighting in in your view i well, know it's I, a very difficult question no well first of all we i don't think we lost absolutely no, I think I think I think it's still possible that we will reach zero net carbon by 2050, but we are going to have to overthrow the the right wing populist governments everywhere uh, in order to do it, and then deal with the problem of dictatorships in China and you know and and Russia. That's what we're going to have to do. Um, incidentally, you know, I my I am an optimist. I do believe not just in in you know the 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 arc of history being this is the problem. The, the arc of the universe is long. As Martin Luther King, but it tends it, it it bends to justice. I think that's true. The problem is the arc of the universe didn't anticipate climate change. No, which gives exactly. Us, gives us a thirty-year deadline to do this. Okay. What's the, the strongest thing we have is the we have the most educated generation ever. We are and not just here in Europe. We have I, I've met young networked Chinese workers. You know, for example, my book circuit about them circulates underground in I know for a fact circulates underground between organized clandestine Chinese workers who organize strikes via the internet. Okay. I, I don't think this globally networked and educated uh generation will allow itself to make the mistakes that the 30s generation did, because I also think it understands what it's going to lose you i said you know my 18 year old goddaughter is in many ways the the person this book is designed for but she like her generation has a huge amount of personal freedom a huge amount of freedom in her personal life all aspects of her life she she has network technology at her fingertips and i didn't when i was 18 I, I, what I had to lose was being the last person in a line of very hierarchical, male-dominated, manual workers. And I could have, I could have, I, I went to university. I was the first person to do that. It was an exhilarating experience. But I didn't, you know, I didn't have the the, the library of humanity at my fingertips, the, the way today's generation do. They have a lot more to lose. And fifty percent of the humanity are women. And and modern fascism is as anti-female and anti-women's reproductive rights as it is against migration and the rights of, of, of ethnic minorities. So more people have stuff to lose. And that's what makes me think that we can defeat it to reiterate through electoral alliances, through laws, which need to be stronger, both on, on tech companies and on fascist groups. And through, this is the point of the book, through reviving the anti-fascist ethos. Ultimately, if my book will succeed, 
If I can get and get people who read it to get on a tube train in London or walk into certain pubs and not put it into their bags and say, should I be reading this, this far out east, away from London, in the suburbs of London, where the right wing still exists? No, I want us to be proud anti-fascists. That's the one thing, of course, that Trump tried to kill. He tried to stigmatise and indeed illegalise the idea of anti-fascism. That's the ultimate struggle. And there's, it's such a beautiful ending to the book where it ends with the word, I felt anti-fascist. Thank you so much, Paul Mason. Thank you for your work, your spirit and everything you've given us. It was such a pleasure talking to you. A pleasure for me as well. Thank you. Thank you. Det var så vores samtale med Paul Mason, og jeg kan kun opfordre folk til at samle bogen op, sprede budskabet og gøre sig klar til at bekæmpe fascismen i alle dens afskygninger. Og husk på, at det er en forudsætning for, at den grønne omstilling kan have en chance for at lykkes. I næste uge, der skal vi tale med en anden rigtig, rigtig god ven af huset. Det er nemlig Jan Werner Müller, som skrev den lille populismebog, som blev et i vores lille offentlighed kæmpe stort hit. Og skrev den store bog om demokratiets historie, kampen om demokratiet, som i en lidt bredere offentlighed blev et hit. Og han har skrevet en ny bog om demokrati nu. Og Jan Werner Müller, han kommer for at fortælle os om, hvad der er demokratiets problemer i dag. Men jeg har også tænkt mig at tale med ham om, hvad det egentlig er, der foregår ved det tyske valg i øjeblikket. Hvordan det kan være, at socialdemokraterne, som vi længe har troet lå over på den idehistoriske kirkegård, nu har rejst sig fra de døde og ser ud til at kunne indtage magten i Europas største økonomi. Jeg håber, vi høres ved.